what have we covered so far? We've covered, we've covered uh, what is and what is not a right, right? We covered where do rights come from. And then we also talked about, is it possible to legislate morality? And this is something that I had to change my thinking on. Because, unfortunately, I did not do the due diligence of studying out what the answer is, can you legislate morality? And I, and, I, and I just took a pious spiritual path of saying, no, only Jesus can change the hearts of men. <laughs> yes, Jesus is the only one that can save a man's soul, put, put the new creation in him, fill them with the Holy Spirit, give them new want-tos, but laws... Moral laws change the minds and the hearts of a culture. We've seen that last week. I won't go into all that. And then we looked at what is the source of morality? What is our source of morality? Today we're going to look at the law. Now, we don't talk about the law a whole lot at Karis New Testament Church because we're a grace and faith church. But understand, I want to just preference this, is that when we talk about the law today, we are not talking about our vertical relationship with God. We are talking about our horizontal relationship in the earth with men. Do you understand the difference? We, 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 we should know that, that it's impossible to reach up to God through obeying laws, keeping laws. That... that the only way we have access to the Father is through Jesus Christ, who did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. To fulfill it on our behalf. And because of God, and God alone, we are able to enter in into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has accomplished for on our behalf. And that's the good news of the gospel. That, that you don't have to be under, the, under guilt. You don't have to be under condemnation. You can walk in holiness and righteousness. And, uh, and seeing yourself as this new creation, something that has never existed before, seeing yourself as God sees you, just like Jesus, right? John the Beloved wrote, as he is, speaking of Jesus, so are you in this world. In this world, not the world to come, even though it's, you're still going to be like him in the world to come. But right now, as you sit here, God sees you just like Jesus. How do you see yourself? See, that's the issue. The issue is how we see ourselves. Do we see ourselves in Christ or do we see ourselves in the flesh? Do we see, see ourselves by faith or do we see ourselves by our carnal knowledge, our feelings? Our five physical senses, right? So as, as believers, we, we are freed from the law because of what Jesus Christ has done. But as, but as citizens of earth, as people of earth, we're citizens, we have dual citizenship. We're citizens of heaven and citizens of earth. We, have, we live in a fallen world. We live where not everyone has been born again. Not everyone's hearts have been transformed. Not every, every Christian's minds have been renewed, right? And so, so there, there's laws that are in the earth. We, we, you have laws in your own home. So we're, what we're going to look at today is what is the source of law? Where do we get our source of what, where the law comes from? And then why was the law given? What, what are laws good for? Are laws good for anything? Why did God give the law? So that's what we're going to be covering today. Sounds interesting? I hope so. But before we get started, before we get started, let's, let's take a quick quiz. Where did our founding fathers get our laws? Did they just make them up? Did they get in a room and say, well, that would be a good law? Let's, how about this? How about this? Is it just something that they came up with their own intellect? 
Did they say, you know, this, this sounds good to command everybody to keep these laws? In the Declaration of Independence, the Founding Fathers appeal to an unchanging, unchanging transcendent authority and fixed primarily moral law. See, they didn't come up with these on their own. They were self-evident. They always existed. You understand that? This wasn't something that our founding fathers just came up with as a good idea. These are things, these laws have been in place from the creation of the earth. Do you remember what that source was? What was the phrase that they used? Well, let's read it. How about that? It says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. So the founding fathers, the founding fathers, when they appealed, they appealed to an unchanging, transcendent authority and fixed primarily morals, moral law, it was the law of nature and nature's God. It was the law of nature and nature's God, something that is fixed. Just like gravity is fixed, these laws are fixed. When you break the law of gravity, people get hurt, right? The same thing is true when you break these natural laws that God has fixed in the earth. People get hurt. People get hurt. So the founding father said that these laws were the laws of nature and nature's God. But what are these laws? How did we get them? See, the founding fathers, just like Christians, know that these laws came from God. But in creation, in the world that we live in, there are three sources of knowledge that can lead us to these laws. See, these, these laws aren't something that God hides from us. They are self-evident. You can see them, right? It's just like in Romans chapter 1 and, and, and 2, how God has not hid himself. He is plainly seen, right? But in our own pride of our own heart, we have denied him, right? So, so these, the first way that, um, that laws are revealed to humanity, is, is it, one is revealed laws. And that's supernatural revelation. Like when God gave laws to the children of Israel in, 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 in the desert, God supernaturally revealed truths to mankind for them to govern themselves by. Right? And, and the reason why he gave that to them is to protect them from pain and show us the path to salvation. God supernaturally revealed many of the laws through the Bible we believe these revealed laws are so far superior and fuller, fuller, fuller than any other source of law. As Christians, as believers, we believe that the revelation that God has given us about how the world is to operate correctly is the, is the supreme source of law. Right? We should, right? The second one is, is, is conscience laws. You don't have to be a Christian to have conscience laws. Law, these are laws that are written on our conscience, right? You don't have to tell people that it's wrong to murder, right? It, kids know that it's wrong to hit their brother and hit their sister. You, you know, you know because they feel shame, guilt, and they hide when they break those conscience laws. And they are self-evident to us. We all have them. 
And, and, and through, but the problem with conscience laws is that over time, humanity can learn to harden their hearts to the conscience. They can harden their hearts to the conscience. And the third way is natural laws, the laws of nature. The third source of laws are the laws that we can logically derive just from nature itself. And if you think about that, it makes sense. After all, if God exists, he, he, he would have created an orderly universe based on a system of laws, laws that, can, that we can believe are part of his very character and nature. If we study his creation, we'll learn how it works, just like physics. The law of nature will be what, we, is what we're going to be focusing on today. Because that is what the Founding Fathers mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. The laws of nature. Because even before Christ, there, men like um, Cicero. You know who Cicero was? He was a contemporary to Julius Caesar. He figured out that there was natural law and it was ordained by a supreme God or gods. Cicero just didn't know which God it was. Cicero realized that if you keep elevating what prevented pain and worked on what caused pain and, and got rid of the things that caused pain and elevated the things that got rid of pain, you'd eventually be able to come up with an objective, rational system of moral laws. And what do I mean by pain? What brings destruction to culture? What, what brings destruction to families? What, what tears down a nation and what builds up a nation? Most people don't even think about these things. Because, why? Because we have lived off of these understandings for years and years and years, and you, you haven't ever even had to think about it. When we violate these laws, the laws of nature, our, our society then has to learn from the school of hard knocks. We have to suffer. Wars have to be fought. It leads to poverty. It leads to, to, it leads to sickness and, and, and despair. And it is unloving. It is unloving to ignore moral laws. If we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, it is unloving for us to ignore the breakdown of moral laws in our society. And as we've talked about, all, law, all laws are moral. Some aren't true morality, but they're all based on morality. Wearing your seatbelt is telling people that they have to wear their seatbelt when they're in the car is a moral law. You are saying that your, that person's life has value and we need to protect those lives by the best means that we have to us. Do you understand that? Everything, everything is based on some type of, of morality. That's all that our legislation, our, our, our government does is legislate morality. Right? We just got to make sure that our morality matches up with natural law, God-giving law. Now let me ask you this. Obvious follow-up question to everything that we've talked about so far. So given that all we have seen, why did God give us the law? Have you, ever, have you guys ever think about this? Why did God give these laws? You as a parent, why do you have laws in your home? To protect you, protect your children, right? To protect your children from other people? Some of you, to protect other people from your children. <laughs> What's that? Avoid discord, keep harmony, right? So... So if that's the reason you did it, why do you think that God did it? Did he do it to be a supreme killjoy? Did he, did he do it because he didn't want us to have any fun in life? 
Did he do it because he didn't want us to enjoy life and, and he didn't want us to enjoy sex? He didn't want us to enjoy all these, all these things. He put them into creation, but then says, you can't touch. No. Was it, did, did God put these laws into place only to show us our sinfulness and that we could not adhere to it? See, that's where we spend a lot of our time. That, that, that is one of the purposes of God's moral laws, especially played out in the Ten Commandments, is that the reason why God gave it to us is to show us our inability to keep it and our need for salvation, our need for a new identity, our need to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. And if, you want, if, if the Ten Commandments didn't do it to you, go read the Beatitudes. Go, go, go read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus just elevates it. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right arm offends you, cut it off. If you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. That was the law on steroids. And why, did, why was Jesus preaching the law like that? Because he wanted you to look to him. He wanted you to throw up your hands in the air and say, God, save me a sinner. Amen? And he has. So let me ask you another question. Why do our politicians make laws? Do they make them just to oppress us? To be killjoys? <laughs> it depends on what kind of government it is, correct? But in, in a good government, that, that what, remember, what, was, what is government for? Government is, to, is put in place to protect good people from evil people. Good people from evil governments. Laws are put in place to protect goodness. Right? So why is, it, why is there a law that says that you have to stop at a red light? Is it there just to bug us? Is it there just because they want to make your commute to work more difficult? No, it's there to protect you. It's there to protect you. I mean, there's a, there's a stoplight stop right on the corner down here from the church. It is there because it's for your good. And if things as simple as a stoplight are for your good, we should look at all laws and consider, is this law for our good? Because laws are there for a purpose, and that purpose is to protect us. And just as important to protect others from us. The laws are there to protect us as a community. So now let me ask you this. Do you think that there is even a single law that God has given us that is there just to make our lives difficult? God say, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this one in there. Because this is going to really make their life hard. In his moral laws, in his natural laws, right? There's, a, there's other laws that he gave Israel. He gave them ceremonial laws, right? And, and, and di different laws that they had to keep. And a lot of those laws were to point to Jesus, right? Unclean and clean foods was just to show that there is a separation. There are unclean and there's clean. And we found out that we were all unclean. And Jesus makes us clean. And he had to show Peter that on the, on the roof. When men from, from Joppa, or, or um, from Cornelius' house, came, came to the house that we just read about during tithes and offerings. And God says, take and eat. And he says, no, I've never allowed anything, to eat anything that is unclean. And Jesus, said, and Jesus, God said to him, do not 
call that which I have cleaned unclean. All of those laws were to point, it was pointing to Jesus, but there's moral laws, there's natural laws that God put in the earth. And do you think that these laws were there just to make your life hard? They weren't. They were actually to, for you to, to help you to avoid pain, to help you avoid suffering, to help you avoid the life of hard knocks. So this law has a purpose. And guess what? The more we follow these laws, the healthier, the safer, the happier we will be. But wait, if we don't follow the law, will we only be unhappy? Let me ask you this, that again. If we do not follow the law of God, will it only affect us? If you do not follow the law of uh, these these moral laws, these natural laws, does it only affect you? Or does it affect your whole household? Does it affect the whole workplace? Does it affect the whole community? Does it affect nations? Yes. It affects others. It, It may even kill them in the same way when we violate God's laws, which were given for our protection, um, others will suffer too. Do you know what the? You know who are the first to suffer? Do you know who are the first to suffer when we violate God's moral laws? The the poor, the disadvantaged, the orphans, the children, the widows, the weakest in our society suffer when we have immoral laws. Governing our nations. So, so, so part of how a Christian Christians have saved the physical world is how we have molded its laws. Do you know that we we cover those some of those? How how the church got involved in writing laws and getting laws passed and changing the the hearts of culture to line up with God's moral laws, and we've we've saved the world. From, through laws. I'm not talking about salvation as going to heaven. I'm talking about created good in the earth. Saved them from calamity and hardship. So do you remember why we elect politicians? What was the reason why we elect politicians? To make laws. To legislate morality. And the law is made to protect us. But what if they make a bad law? What if if it's a bad law? One that doesn't mesh with one of the three sources of of laws that can be seen in, in the earth. What do you think the consequences would be? Do you think a bad law could be destructive? Yes. So if a politician made a law that went against God's law... Do you think that it could do damage to society? Yes. Unless our laws mesh with the laws of nature and nature's God, they will hurt us. They will hurt our children. They will hurt the poor. They will hurt our nation. When our politicians make laws that violate the laws of nature and nature's God, it's it's not the rich who suffer first. That's why so many elites... And rich love communism and socialism. Because they're not the ones that suffer first. But sooner or later, when our politicians, when our politicians make, make laws that don't mesh, mess with the natural laws and, 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 and nature's God, they hurt us. When our politicians make laws that violate Laws of nature's God, it's, it's the poor that suffer. Not only um, do the rich, they can, they can protect themselves. It, it, it's the poor and, and, and the, the weak and, and those that are in most need that are unable, that are helpless in protecting themselves 
and they are the very first ones that suffer. So we as a church should be concerned about our loss. We as the church should be concerned about our laws. We can't look the other way when it comes to our laws. We have to be involved. See, these messages really aren't for the outside world. It's to wake up the church. Because the church gets this idea, if we just preach Jesus, everything's going to be okay. The church is what's going to allow the earth to go to hell in a handbasket. History shows that the church is what has caused nations to prosper, nations to flourish, that brought harmony and, and peace like we've never known. Or the earth has never known. Allowing ungodly laws to be made is unloving and it violates the second great commandment of loving our neighbor as ourself. As, as Christians, we cannot afford to be apathetic when it comes to the laws of our land. Now here's the question. The next logical question to all of this, okay, but which God is the standard giver? Whose God are we obligated to? Is this moral lawgiver the God of the Muslims or the Hindus? How about the God of the Thajis? You ever hear the, 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 the uh, Thajis were a cult of Hindus who believed that their godness, goddess Kali required them to strangle people to allow them to achieve nirvana. Is that, is that the God that we, the laws that we, we follow? Whose God is the standard giver, and how do we know what his law is or what his moral values are? The only God anyone should trust is the one true God. But who exactly is the true God, and what is his law? Well, the standard giver, the only true, factual, and logical, provable God is the God of the Bible. Now, the evidence for this would have to be a completely different series that we do on apologetics and understanding that God, the God of the Bible, does, does not take blind faith. Romans tells us that he's plainly seen. The God of the Bible does not take blind faith, but every other God that man has come up with takes blind faith. But it's worth a brief overview especially as, as, you, as we may be asked at some point to prove the source of your moral ideas of legislating sound laws. Look, look, at, look at this chart. Here's, here's just a few, few religions that are in the world. What we first have to do is dispel this idea that all religions are the same. Have you heard that? Well, it's, they all preach the same thing. It's basically the same thing. And, and, you know, you even have some Christians. I can't call them Christians. Some people that proclaim to be Christians that say, well, truly, there's multiple paths to get to God. That, that is... I'm trying to think of a... Christian way to say this. That's a bunch of BS, biblical stupidity. If someone says that all religions teach the same thing, just reply with one word, Baal. Baal. Baal worshipers used to sacrifice their children. The only other people that I can think of that worship that way today is Planned Parenthood. So do you think that Baal is the same as all other religions? 
Do you think Baal worship is the same as all other religions? Also, all religions have, have concepts of God and heaven that differ to the point of contradiction. They all have different ways to get to God and different gods and different ideas of what heaven is. Religions like Islam and Christianity are exclusive in that they say everyone else is going to hell or something like a hell. Hinduism and Buddhism are exclusive as well. They say there is no hell or that life is hell and heaven heaven is becoming nothing and merging with heaven. That is when you finally reach nirvana and get to stop the, the endless cycle of reincarnation. So trying to claim that they're that they are all true, is nonsense. It violates the law of contradiction. You understand this? Which say that two contradictory statements cannot be both both true. That two contradictory statements cannot be both true at the same time. You understand that? And if you run into someone who disagrees with the law of non-contradiction, then tell them that they should be slapped repeatedly until they agree that to be slapped and not to be slapped are different. Right? So what does this all mean? It means if no religion is the same, we are left with only two options. Either one religious concept of God is true, or no religious concept of God is true. The only way to move forward from here is to, el- to evaluate each religion based on facts, history, archaeology, and scientific evidence. If you're honest, only one religion is able to withstand this scrutiny, and that religion is Christianity. If you guys want to dig into this on your own, get evidence that demands a verdict by Josh McDowell. Lee Stroll has a case for... A Case for Christ, and there's many more apologetic books out there that you can read that shows, that actually lays out the evidence and it, de- and it demands that you now have to make a choice. A careful study of all religions show that all other religions are founded on blind faith except Christianity. All other religions claim to be based on unprovable beliefs. Christianity is the only religion that is not dependent on blind faith. Through apologetics, we can prove. We can prove that it is more reasonable to believe God exists than not. You know, even people like um, Dawkins and um, Stephen Stephen Hawkins, right? They admit, science admits, that the earth and time, that substance... Matter and time had a beginning. Matter and time had beginning. So there has to be something that's outside of matter and time to create that. Right? If matter and time had a beginning, matter couldn't create itself. If you can prove that matter can create itself, before it was created, that's like me saying that I'm my mom's, I birthed my mom. That doesn't make sense, does it? Because my mother has to come before me because she had to birth me if she's my mother. There, there, there is something that stands out of space and time that created all things. And science is proving the Bible more and more true. We can prove that the Bible we have today, and we learned this with the young adults just just this week, the Bible we have today is 99.8% accurate as what was originally written. You You can prove it with mathematical accuracy. You know how many people don't know this? You know how many people just... Love ignorance. We can prove that Jesus really existed using non-biblical historians and non-biblical sources. 
We can show that the disciples died for their claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Think about this. Have you ever thought about this? That all 12, counting Paul, died a martyr's death. Now, what's a martyr's death? A martyr's death is not what the world is trying to rewrite it as. The world tells you a martyr is someone that straps a bomb to themselves and goes into a school and blows themselves up for the religion. That's not a martyr. That's a murderer. A martyr is someone that gives their life up unwillingly for their faith. All the apostles faced execution, and all of them were executed for faith in Jesus Christ that he rose from the dead, except John. And he was boiled in boiling oil and didn't die. So they sent him to the Isle of Patmos. If I threw someone in boiling oil and, and they didn't die, I'd try to get them as far away from me as possible too. And that's where he received the revelation of Christ. Let me ask you something. If you knew, if you were there, and you knew that Jesus never rose from the dead, you never seen the risen Christ, that you knew that he was in that tomb and everything was completely made up, would you be executed in some of the most horrific ways for a lie? That right there. Peter, Peter, he, he, he was so passionate that they, when they went to crucify Peter, he said, crucify me upside down for I am not worthy to die the same way as my Lord. That right there. And we have historical evidence of this. Separate from the Bible. We can show that early beliefs of the early church have not changed from what the, the, the Bible claims. We can show that the grave of Jesus was empty. We can, we can show with, with, with a case that would stand up in the court of law that it is more reasonable to believe Jesus rose from the dead than any other theory. The truth is plainly seen. See, the biggest stumbling block, the biggest problem that people have with embracing Jesus, embracing Christianity, is that they don't want it to be true. That's the biggest stumbling block. It's our human pride. I do not want it to be true. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to investigate it. I don't want anything to do with it. And that lines up with Scripture. In John chapter 3, verse 17, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. So what is God trying to, to judge the world and bring them into, into judgment and send them to hell? Is that what, why Jesus came? No. The, the, the one who believes in Him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, you understand something. God doesn't have to judge the world. It's already judged in sin. It is already sinful. And sin itself is the judgment. For the wages of sin is death. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, so that his deeds will not be exposed. You know, so many, so many people say, well, if I could just been there when Jesus was there, then, then I'd believe. I'd have stronger faith. These people seen the light. They seen the miracles. The Pharisees knew that Jesus rose from the dead. And they still rejected the light. So seeing that the Christian God is the one true God, that He is the God of nature and the laws of nature, we are obligated to adhere to His moral laws. See, moral laws have both physical and spiritual consequences. They reflect God's character. 
Think about that. When a nation operates under the moral laws of God, we are reflecting God Himself. His kingdom has come. His will is being done. They are given to protect us and to protect the weak and innocent. And these laws are transcendent. They are eternal, all-encompassing, never-changing, and remain as a primary moral guide and a basis for our our natural laws. And there is value in having them taught publicly. So let's look at one topic. So we can get down here. Let's look at one topic. One one topic that is um, actually quite um, practical for the times we we live in right now. I have a question for you. Should government play a part in the laws that govern marriage? Should government play a part in the laws that govern marriage? Should they be concerned with what make up the families of the people in which they govern? See, some Christians say that government has no place in marriage. That's that's a religious ceremony. It's a religious thing. See, we need to know. We need to know. Does the government have a place in marriage? Does the government have a, should be concerned with how the makeup of the family? So, before we answer this, let's consider the following facts. And as we go through these facts, also remember this, that as we go through this, that these statistics, despite widespread um, broken homes and divorce and out-of-wedlock births, divorced single-parent household, children are currently only 29% of the population. So when we look at these statistics, understand that these children only make up 29% of the population. And let me preference this. These are just facts of moral law. These are facts of natural law. These are not meant to bring condemnation and guilt and shame. Here's the good news of the gospel. Despite anything that we have ever done by breaking God's moral laws, despite anything that we have ever done or any road that we've ever taken that's walked us away from God's God's way of doing things and God's will for our life. In Christ Jesus, He can miracles can happen in in a, in a blink of an eye. He He can fix. He can He can mend. He can He can build bridges. He 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 can make your life better than it ever was before by simply humbling yourself and allowing Him to come in and do what only He can do. So do not fall into condemnation when we talk about this. Kids are twice as likely to be in juvenile delinquents, to be juvenile delinquents or teen moms if their fathers do not live in the home. Twice as likely. 70% of long-term prison inmates grew up without fathers. 70% and they only make up 29% of the population. 60% of rapists grew up in a female-only headed home. This means kids from female-only homes may be four times as likely to commit rape as kids from healthy homes. We always talk about the science. Follow the science. Don't be a science denier. This is mathematical science. These are facts. These are facts that happen when we break God's moral laws. The laws of nature. And nature's God. 75% of adolescents charged with murder 
grew up with, that's supposed to be without dad. Sorry about that. <laughs> they have a dad. They had a dad, but they grew up without a dad. I screwed up. But 75%. Can you see how easy it would be to fix our prison issues? To fix assault on women? Fatherless children are three times more likely to fail in school, require psychiatric treatments, and commit suicide as, ad, um, adole, as ad, adolescents. Fatherless children are up to 40 times more likely to experience child abuse compared with children growing up in a home with a father and mother. Teenage girls from troubled families are more sexually active at earlier ages and more likely to become pregnant. Divorce, lack of support from their fathers, or male bashing mothers causes teenage girls to believe that men are unnecessary for raising children. Affectionate relationships between girls and their natural fathers delay puberty. The most important period for this is in the first five years of a girl's life, suggesting that girls' brains are set up for relationship styles in this period. Close relationships with mothers are less significant in that regard. The opposite effect is seen when girls have a relationship with unrelated males, such as stepfathers. They reach puberty earlier. We have commercials we have commercials that, are, that literally are promoting that men are non-essential. And they wrap it in a morality. And it's a false morality, and it's going to lead to the destruction of our society. We have science on our side. We have the facts on our side. And you can deny the facts. But they're still the facts. In general, teenage girls from divorced homes become promiscuous because they don't value men. Um, conversely, girls with secure attachment to both parents who grow up in a low-stress home delay sexual intercourse and choose long-term stable mates. 70% of those described as violent came from female-headed homes. 80% of those motivated by displaced anger come from female-headed homes. Of all juvenile criminals who are treated or who, who are a threat to the public, three-fourths came from broken homes. Young men who grew up in homes without fathers are twice as likely to end up in jail as those who come from traditional two-parent families. Twice as likely. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how we fix our, our communities, our culture. You know, everybody's talking about the prison system, how it's broken. We don't even need a prison system almost if we just bring the... Start promoting family. Even as far back as 1987, a study found that divorce, regardless of ec economic status or race of the disrupted family, posed the strongest correlation with robbery rates in American cities with a population more than 100,000. It's not poverty or race that is associated with higher rates of robbery, but divorce. Another 1993 study showed that the rate of violent crime in burglary in, in community is related to the number of single-parent households with, children's, with children ages 12 to 20. There's direct correspondent, co correlation, excuse me. And here's the thing of it is, Ronald Reagan was the one that pa passed the uh, no, uh, oh shoot. No, no reason divorce, divorces. No fault divorces. 
That's a bad law. That's a horrible law. And we should call it out. School delinquency rates are 10 to 15% higher in broken homes. Among all possible contributing factors, only divorce rates are con consistently associated with suicide and with homicide rates. Eric Anderson, a Yakamiya, Washington anthropologist, anthropologist is someone that studies cultures, determined that most skinheads range from 14 to 27 and are from largely middle-class neighborhoods and broken, unstable families. The same thing is with gangs, inner-city gangs. A recent study of 25,000 incarcerated juveniles made by the Bureau of Justice Statistics indicates that 72% of them came from broken homes. And at the time, 74% of the nation's children lived with two, two parents, only 26% with one parent. These truths, they should not only shock us, but they should sadden, sadden us. And what we have to remember is that these statistics far too often are the consequences from immoral laws that do not protect society, do not protect people. So should the government be concerned with the morality of marriage? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is the goal. It's its goal to protect the longevity of a civilization and the people in which it governs. The one, number one concern the government should have is promoting healthy, traditional families. If they're a good government. If they're protecting people. But that's not what our government does. It gets involved in immoral things when it comes to marriage. You know, as a Christian, how, what should our stance be on same-sex marriage? As an American, a Christian living in America, what should our, with governing laws, what should, what, what should our stance be on same-sex marriage? It should be this. I think this is my stance. Is that if two people want to go find some organization to marry them, go for it. But government should have no place in subsidizing or promoting it because it's actually decaying our society and it's immoral and it's a breakdown of the family and it's going to bring corruption, chaos, and pain and suffering to our civilization. Government should only do the things that line up with nature's law. And same-sex marriage does not line up with nature. Now, does God love those individuals? Yes, He loves them. Does He want to save them? Yes, He wants to save them. Can they struggle with homosexuality and still go to heaven? Yes! Just like, all, like me. I can't just eat just a little bit of ice cream. But certain sins have a greater effect on, on a society than others. See, we're trying to make sex as it, it, it's, 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 it's just sex. It's just sex. No, it's not. Natural law even shows this. Our own law, legal system shows this. If someone is assaulted, right, physically assaulted, there's a, certain, there's a certain punishment for that law. But if someone is sexually assaulted, there's even a greater punishment for that law. Why? I thought it was just sex. I thought it was no big deal. No, because there's something, our conscience knows that there's something about what God has put in humanity, in the human heart, when it comes to sex.
The truth does not lie. God's standard, his law, his morality about marriage and the family is the only way that leads to a nation's prosperity and preservation. Look at history. Look at the downfall of Rome. All other paths lead to a downward spiral of society. As believers, can we honestly say that the damage done to kids and society by these laws are none of our concern? Do we think that Christ would have have the church sit idly by while anti-Christ culture destroys itself? When it destroys the lives of our, our future generations, the dreams, the hopes of millions of children by removing God's guardrails from marriage and the family. Is, is keeping quiet, truly loving our neighbors. See, even liberals should want stable families and less crime, shouldn't they? Yes, they should, right? I mean, I would think, I would hope that, that, that an atheist should support this. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. See, in the Bible, the burden of proof is upon us. We need to be able to explain these truths to people in gentleness and with respect. By educating ourselves on these topics, simply by being and simply by, by being real disciples of Jesus. Right? If you're a disciple of Jesus, we should be educating ourselves on these things. God gave us law, the laws of nature because he loved us. He wanted the very best for us. He said that the way you can enjoy this is the way that you can enjoy life. You can enjoy each other each other. And enjoy Him here on earth is to obey these laws that will protect you, protect your family, protect your neighborhood, protect this nation, protect the poor, protect, protect the widows and the orphans, and to help spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. How unloving can we be to allow our na- nation to ignore God's laws and let the oppressed suffer? Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us. That you are a good, good Father. And that you have placed in nature itself laws that are meant for our good and to prosper a civilization, to prosper humanity. But Father, we also know that we live in a broken world. We live in a place where sin abounds. But we thank you that grace does much more abound. And I thank you that as we prepare ourselves to be disciples of Christ, we will be prepared to give an answer for what we believe, the hope that we have in Christ, and the hope that we have for this nation. And the hope that we have for this world. Father, may we be disciples that are working to answer the prayer of Jesus when he prayed, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heavenly Father, in this small community, we ask that you would, through through Holy Spirit's guidance and his leadings, that we would be the salt and light that this world so desperately needs, that we would bring hope, that we would bring joy. So many times when the gospel came to, (laughs) to cities in the Bible, 
It says that they were filled with great joy. And may, be, may that be said of us, that we bring great joy to our cities. We just love you, we praise you, and we close in worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Karis New Testament Church. For more information or to contact us, go to www.karisntc.org. And remember, you are deeply loved highly favored, and destined to reign in Christ Jesus.